Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, the original great Rob Silver. And today we have a jam-packed show. And I'm exhausted because I recorded a four-hour podcast on another platform from midnight to four. Then I stayed up and watched the first fight that I'll be talking about on the podcast, Nayoa Inoue versus Paul Butler. Then I took a shower, ate some breakfast, and now I'm ready to do the show on no sleep since I came home from work last night at 11 o'clock. So, we're going to talk about brief rundown of what we're talking today. We're going to be talking about uh, this morning, I'm recording this Tuesday morning, December 13th, Nayoa Inoue's one-sided beating of Paul Butler. We're going to talk about Saturday's fight, and damn, we had a lot of fights Saturday. Luis Alberto Lopez versus Josh Warrington for his version of the featherweight title, for Warrington's version of the featherweight title. We had we had another fight. Oh, yeah, we had uh, Michael Collins uh, win over Kareem Griffey. And then, of course, we had Terrence Crawford against David Alvinison and... Sander Martin versus Teo Lopez. And then a very long Q&A session. And then I'm going to give my historical tribute to the recently deceased at the very, very wise age of 85, Mills Lane. And I'll talk about where I rate him amongst the greatest referees in boxing history. Now, on to what will probably be the... Longest show I've done on the Pound for Pound platform. This morning, I saw the best fighter in the world fight a guy that did not want to fight. Naomi Noe versus Paul Butler. The winner is the undisputed Bantamweight champion in the world. I predicted Inouye would knock him out sooner than later. Wasn't sooner than later because Paul Butler did not come to fight. And... Timothy Bradley is one of the worst commentators in the history of the sport. Joe Tessitore is one of the worst boxing announcers in the history of the book, of the sport. They were both atrocious this morning calling this fight. Timothy Bradley actually thought Paul Butler had a shot and told Tessitore, oh, well, um, if he could catch Inouye in between his shots and bide his time. There's no biding your time against Inouye, no, you stupid motherfucker. In order to beat Nioa and Noah, you've got to get inside and you've got to force him into a firefight like Nonita Donaire did their first fight. Nioa and Noah, like I've said several times, is a modern-day Thomas Hearns. He's got the best jab in boxing. He's the best offensive fighter in boxing. He's the best boxer in boxing, period. He doesn't waste any punches. Everything is off that battering ram of a left jab. This fight, ladies and gentlemen, reminded me of Thomas Hearns versus Randy Shields over 40 years ago. Uh, one of the fights he took, he, he, he defended his WBA title against before he faced Chigori Leonard in their epic first fight. Randy Shields ran and ran, and Hearns finally stopped him in the 13th round. Well, in this fight, Butler ran and ran as he knew he dominated with the jab, was throwing tremendous hooks to the body. It was a body shot that finally dropped Butler in the 11th round. A beautiful right to the rib cage, followed by a four-punch combination. Butler goes down and is counted out. 11th round knockout by the best fighter in the world, the first undisputed bantamweight champion of the world in over 50 years. I don't, I don't make a difference between four belt era, three belt over two. Fuck all that bullshit. He is the bantamweight champion of the world. He's undisputed, and they can start stripping him. It doesn't matter because he's done at bantamweight. He's moving up to 122, and the only fight I want to see at 122 is Stephen Coolboy Fulton versus Nayoa Inoue. Fulton is the only guy on the planet, I think, that has a shot at being Inoue. Why? Because Fulton will take the fight to Inoue. Fulton will not try to outbox Inoue because you can't outbox a man with a jab like that. Historically, we've seen that. Master boxers like Sugar Ray Leonard and Wilfred Benitez couldn't outbox Thomas Hearns. Nonino Donaire, who's a great boxer, 
knew he couldn't outbox. You know, he had to make it into a fight. Stephen Fulton has to make it into a dog fight. And we've seen him win fights like that. And that's his only shot at beating Inouye. Stephen Coolboy Fulton cannot box from the outside because that jab will dominate. Donaire has that type of jab that you can't move around. You've got to get inside the jab. We need this fight. Let's make this fight. Bob Arum, PBC, get your asses together and make this fight. It's the only fight at 122 that makes any sense. Otherwise, Inouye will be wasting his time. And Fulton wants to fight. As he told me when I met him at the Barclay Center a couple of months ago, he, he attended the fight. I attended the fight to see uh, the, uh, Deontay Wilder's one-punch knockout of Robert Hellenius. So, Inouye with a predictable knockout, Butler did not come to fight. Uh, once again, Tim Bradley and Joe Testatore, fucking clueless. More on Tim Bradley yesterday because the fuck is... It's criminal. It's criminal what what he was able to achieve last week. Unfucking real. But we'll talk about that later. Let's get back to Saturday's action. And we go to England. Um, we see Michael Collins' first round knockout. Well, Ireland. We first go to Ireland, and Michael Collins knocks out Kareem Griffey in the very first round. Um, great. Great showing by Conlon, and he might be fighting the guy that we're talking about next. Luis Alberto Lopez versus Josh Warrington in the best fight of the weekend. This was a fight that went back and forth. And after eight rounds, I had Lopez way ahead. He was out hustling Warrington. He was out punching Warrington. He was out working Warrington. Warrington didn't have an answer. I gave Lopez six of the first eight rounds. And then Warrington came warring down the stretch. I thought he won three of the last four rounds to make it 115-113. Lopez on my scorecard. And Lopez wins the decision. And I was shocked that he got the decision because it was a close fight. And it was in Warrington's backyard. And Lopez was the away fighter and we see many a time that home cooking there was no home cooking saturday the right guy won kudos to luis alberto lopez and now i could see him going to ireland and fight michael conlon in what would be a very interesting and excellent fight uh conlon and lopez that would be a firefight Oh, that would be that would be incredible. Colin is in my fight of the year. His fight with Lee Wood early this year was sensational. If you missed it, go check it out. And I would love to see Colin versus Lopez. Lopez versus Lee Wood also is a great possibility that I would love to see. A lot of fights to be done at 126 pounds. And don't tell me about no goddamn Gary Russell. Because for all intents and purposes, his career is over. Now. On to Saturday night's fights. First we go to uh, Tiafimo Lopez versus Sander Martin. Another close fight. A fight that, it could, that could have gone either way. Send, I, like I predicted last week, I predicted Lopez by decision. And Lopez won by split decision. But this fight could have gone either way. I said it would be a close fight. But I did, what I did not predict how bad Lopez would look. Lopez has passed his peak. Lopez barely could beat the Sander Martins of the world. Sander Bart Martin is no world beater. He's he's a tough cookie. Yeah, he beat Mikey Garcia, but Mikey Garcia was washed up. Yeah, he almost beat Tio Lopez, but Lopez is not the same fighter that beat Lomachenko. Lopez will get destroyed by Regis Prograce. Josh Taylor will mop the floor with him. At 140 pounds, Tio Lopez, he's not beating Tank Davis. Hell, he's not beating Ryan Garcia. Tiafimo Lopez, when he steps up at 140 and faces the very good elite fighters at 140, is going to get knocked the fuck out. Lopez beat Lomachenko and he peaked. Sort of reminds me of when Sean O'Grady beat Hilma Kenty. He peaked because after that he, he never came close to 
achieving it, and we're talking 135 pounds, you'll see certain fighters be the very good to great fighter, and then they never reach those heights again. Teofimo Lopez is not that good. He's not that good. At one time, he was a very good to elite fighter. Now, he's middle of the pack. He's mediocre at best. And the minute he faces a real good fighter at 140 pounds, whether it's Devin Haney moving up, whether it's uh, Josh Taylor, whether it's Regis Prograce, it'll be a wrap for, uh, for him as far as being a marketable fighter. And um, I already see it because at the press conference before the fight, he told Max Kellerman that he wants to do voiceovers and acting and announcing for ESPN. Where are your priorities, you fucking idiot? Maybe he realizes that he's not the same fighter he used to be. And then there's a clip on YouTube of him questioning his skills, his skills, his skill level um, while talking to his team. And they're talking about, oh, well, maybe he should fire his father and have a new trainer. I don't think it matters. I think Teo Lopez is what you see is what you get, and that is a fighter who is on the decline, even at his very youthful age. He's in his mid-20s. And now we go to, and I, I predicted a fifth round. I predicted a fifth round or seventh round. It was either a fifth round or seventh round knockout. Either the, Regardless, it was a sixth round knockout. Terrence Crawford did what he wanted to do against David Avenition. Uh, Avenition landed some nice shots. Um, I even gave Avenition the third round. I thought he out hustled Crawford in the third round. But it was after the third round was all Crawford. He was in the pocket. He was landing, outlanding Avenition. And then towards the end of the sixth round, he landed a beautiful right hook on a four-point punch combination that bounced Martin's head off the canvas. Martin counted out. Six-round knockout would have been a, a knockout of the year in many, many years, but I still got to give Lee Woods' knockout of Michael Conlon the knockout of the year because he knocked Conlon out of the fucking ring. He almost killed Conlon. Whenever you knock somebody out the ring, <laughs> in a great fight like that, in a war in the 12th round, in which was one of the best rounds of the year as well, yeah. But back to uh, Terrence Bud Crawford. Found out that he's not getting ten million that he claimed, and I don't know this this network BLK BLK Prime. I don't know how long they're gonna last. I know they got a fight with the washed up Adrian Broner headlining next month. That fight's not gonna do any numbers. There's no way. Look, the zone is bleeding money, and they've got billionaires backing that uh network, that streaming service. Who the hell is backing BLK Prime? And I see that Terrence Crawford, who claimed he was getting 10, 10 million, is only actually getting six million after ticket sales, pay-per-view buys. Which, if five thousand people bought that pay-per-view, I'd be shocked. I saw it for free, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> Terrence Craw Crawford with a perfect uh, right hook. As he was fighting out the softball position, six-round knockout, and now Crawford, look, Mr. Crawford, either you fight Boots Ennis or Errol Spence next at welterweight. There's nobody else you should fight. Nobody. Nobody. I don't want to hear Virgil Ortiz. I don't want to be here standing on this. No, I want you to fight either Boots Ennis or Errol Spence next, period, end of story. All right, now on to the Q&A session. Let me get the, I got a lot of questions this week. God damn. I might have to skip a few questions because there are some very uh, non-related boxing questions here. Let me see now. Okay. All right. Yeah, first time question um, from this gentleman. Um, I'm gonna have to follow him on Twitter because he followed me, Andy Bowen. Uh, good day, sir. How you doing, Andy? Um, I appreciate you bringing in this question. This is an excellent question. Is the Hulu Theater the best venue in NYC to watch boxing in? Which is the better arena to watch boxing in, MSG or Barclays? Okay, 
Hulu Theater is definitely the best venue in New York City to watch a fight. It's 5,000 seats. I've been there. I've seen fights both at the Hulu Theater and the old felt form in which was the original Hulu Theater. I've seen, I saw a bunch of closed circuits at the felt form and a bunch of boxing cards at the felt form and a bunch of cards at the Hulu Theater. Hulu Theater, for those who you don't know, is the small theater underneath Madison Square Garden. You have Madison Square Garden, the, the 20,000 seat arena where the Knicks, the Rangers, big time concerts, and of course, big time boxing occurs. And the WWE from time to time um, holds wrestling events there. That's the big arena. The small arena, the 5,000 seat arena, is the Hulu Theater, which was the felt form in, when it was built in the 1970s and then remodeled. In 1990, 91, 92, they redid the Forum, and then it's been under several different names. Now it's the Hulu Theater. It's whoever is corporate sponsoring the arena. At one time, god damn, it's been a different. It's been a different bunch of different names, but now it's the Hulu Theater. Yes, Andy, the Hulu Theater is the best uh, venue in New York City to watch a fight. Five thousand seats. Every seat's a good seat. Just a perfect venue to watch boxing in. Which is the better venue to watch boxing in? The Big Garden or the Barclays Center? Another great question, Andy. Barclays Center. I love. I went to see Deontay Wilder versus Robert Hellenius. And the seats I had were perfect right behind the floor. Shout out to my brother Gritty who's listening. He got me those. He got me. Uh, he got those seats for us. And they were perfect. Um, the Prudential Center in Newark, Andy, is a better fight, better venue to watch boxing in Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden, if you're not right behind ringside, once you get up to the 100 and 200 level seats, it's so far up that it's hard to get a good glimpse of the fights. And I know I've been to the Big Garden too many times. I've forgotten how many times I've attended cards at Madison Square Garden. I saw Salvador Sanchez versus Azuma Nelson. I saw several pay-per-view fights there. Edwin Rosario versus Hector Camacho. Four or five Mike Tyson fights coming up as as um, a prospect and then a contender in 1985 and 1986. Riddick Bowe versus Andrew Galata, the riot fight. Evander Holyfield versus Lennox Lewis, one of the biggest robberies of all time. Of course, Bernard Hopkins, one-man destruction of Felix Trinidad. But I had good seats in all those fights. With Salvador Sanchez and Zuma Nelson, so many people, only 5,000 people attended that fight that my father and I moved down to great seats from where we were sitting because we were sitting way up there. But if you're not sitting ringside or... The level behind ringside, once you get to the 100, and forget the 200s, once you get to the 100 level, 100 seat levels, it's very difficult to get a good glimpse of the fights. While at the Prudential Center and the Barclays Center, the seats are, clo- are closer, um, um, are more situated closely to the ring. And so I'd, I'd put the Prudential Center and the Barclays Center as the better venue to watch a fight as far as seeing the fight. Now, as far as atmosphere, for a big fight, for a big event, no other arena in the world has a better atmosphere than Madison Square Garden. So, Andy, I appreciate that questions. Keep sending them in, man. These were great fucking questions. All right. Carl Bristol with another great question. Carl asks, Rob, whom do you think are the all-time great and all-time worst father-son trainer-fighter combinations from a historical and current-day standpoint? I love the Haney's, Bill and Devin Haney. They Right now, I consider them the best father-son combination active, and it's by a mile, okay? Um, worst all-time, Zab Judah and his father. Jab, Zab Judah's father was a... Uh, Jiu-Jitsu or karate instructor. He wasn't a boxing trainer. Zab Judah was one of the most naturally gifted boxers in the history of boxing who could have used an Emmanuel Stewart instead of his father. And I think his father got in the way 
of Zab's career because Zab was very undisciplined. Um, he would drink between fights. If he had a trainer that stayed on top of him, like an Emmanuel Stewart, he wouldn't have gotten into those type of extra curricular activities outside the ring, like going to clubs. Uh, my ex-girlfriend told me one time, he, this was back in 2000, 2001, he tried to approach her in a club and his breath smelled like a combination of shit and vodka. She was like, get away from me. <laughs> oh, you've had some, um, Gregorio Benitez was a great trainer. But he had a hard time with his son, Wilfred Benitez, who was the most talented fighter he ever trained because Wilfred had extracurricular activities. He liked to drink. He screwed a lot of women, and he did cocaine. And Gregorio, who reports were that he used to physically abuse Wilfred when Fred was growing up, after a while, Wilfred wasn't going for that shit. Well, Wilfred's like, nah, are you going to hit me? I'm going to fuck you up. And so what looked like could have, what should have been a great father-son duo didn't pan out. I think Wilfred also could have uh, had a better, tra- a Gil Clancy could have been great for Wilfred Benitez back then. Shane Mosley and his father, Jack Mosley. Jack Mosley, the only fighter he ever trained that was of any consequence was his son. That was the situation, Carl, where you had a father latch on to a great natural fighter and it was the fighter learning more from the guys he fought against than the actual father. Yeah, Jack might have taught him out of box, but once Shane got his style down pack and his natural ability took over, there was nothing Jack could do to help him. And you saw that in um, Shane Mosley's losses to both Ronald Winky Wright and Vernon Forrest, Jack had no answers in, in strategic-wise to try and help uh, Shane Mosley. Other father-son combinations. Felix Trinidad and his father, Felix Sr. That might be the best father-son combination of all time. Felix Sr. knew when to wake up his son. Every time his son would get knocked down or hurt early in a fight, his father would slap him in between corners, in between rounds in the corner, and then all of a sudden a light would go on in Felix, and then Felix would go in and almost instantaneously destroy his opponent. So that, in my opinion, was the greatest father-son combination. Roy Jones Jr. and Roy Jones Sr. almost killed each other early in their career. After Roy Jones Sr. killed Roy Jones Jr. Pitbull, Roy Jones Jr. fired his father, and he went with Alton Murkison for the rest of his career. So uh, what should have been a great father-son duo wasn't because they just, their personalities just didn't click. And I'm trying to see if I've missed out on any other father-son combinations, but uh, as far as today, Bill and Devin Haney, without a doubt, best father-son combination. And they've always been the, there's always been... The uh, the rule that, well, not the rule, but a common saying has been the worst trainer for a fighter is his father. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Bill Haney has a common influence. When you see Devin Haney and you see the way he talks, the, the, the class way he acts, he gets that from his father. And his father lived a very rough life, former felon, um, did things that he's ashamed of doing, but he was one of those guys like a Bernard Hopkins who learned from his mistakes and was rehabilitated. And now Bill is a common influence on his son, and they could go down as the greatest father-son combination in the history of boxing. We'll see because Devin Haney's young, and he's got a whole lot of greatness in front of him. All right, great question as always, Carl. Great fucking question. All right, on to the next question. Um, hey, Sue Salas. Hey, Sue, I'm gonna skip this question. I'll I'll get back to this question next week. I want to stick to the boxing. 
Um, this is a great question, but I'll skip this 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 week, and I'll go on to the reason why because I I can go I can go on. This is a non-boxing question he's asked, and it's about women in general, and I don't want to uh, take away from today's uh, uh, program. I want to strictly deal with boxing today. So next week I will answer your question. I promise. LL School K, long-time listener, one of my longest longest tenured listeners. His question, you want to alleviate voter fraud and big money influence of election, just have the candidates box for office headgear, box for office, headgear with 12 ounce gloves, three cards, two minutes on, one minute off, 20 foot ring. We go into OT if it's a draw by adding two extra rounds. Thoughts? <laughs> oh, man. My thoughts is that Donald Trump would have a... Uh, he would have uh, some type of metal in the gloves and knock out all of his opponents because he's a cheating bastard. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Let me uh, let me go on. That was a semi boxing question, but Dex, Dex again, LL. Uh, Mike Troy, who I did uh, a podcast with on a different platform about Allen Iverson. If you want to know about it, DM me. Uh, on on Twitter, Robert Silver five seven six eight. I'll I'll give you the link to that podcast now. Um, Mike asked, calling Tim Bradley a Hall of Famer is questionable to him. Last week, uh, congratulations to Carl Froch and Rafael Marquez for being voted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Both well-deserved. In my opinion, Rafael and Juan, Marquez, Juan Manuel Marquez are the greatest brother duo in the history of boxing. Um, I don't have to go in, into Juan Manuel Marquez's career. You, you, you guys know about it, especially his one-punch knockout of Manny Pacquiao. Rafael Marquez is one of the greatest bandwaves I've ever seen. He fought everybody, and he was the first person to give Mark Two Sharp Johnson a beating. He beat him up twice. And Mark Two Sharp Johnson is one of the greatest southpaws I've ever seen. Greatest flyweight I've ever seen. At 118, he fought Marquez, and Marquez beat his ass twice. So, yeah, Rafael Marquez is more than deserving of being in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And, uh... Don't forget his great wars with Israel Vasquez. So, yeah. But as far as Tim Bradley goes, that motherfucker doesn't deserve to be in the International Box Hall of Fame. He's one of the worst members of that Hall of Fame. Barely better than Barry McGuigan and the wife beat Arturo Gatti, two guys that don't belong in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Okay, Tim Bradley was a solid fighter who out-hustled a lot of guys. He was never a great fighter. They robbed Manny Pacquiao, one of the worst decisions in boxing history. So Timothy Bradley has a win over Manny Pacquiao that he doesn't deserve. And then Manny thoroughly beat him up twice after that. And they talk about, oh, well, he beat Juan Manuel Marquez. Juan Manuel Man well, Marquez was 75 years old. Man, get the fuck out of here. Tim Bradley struggled against a brawler in Ruslan Provenikov. He struggled several times late in his career before finally retiring. Timothy Bradley is not a Hall of Famer. I don't want to hear it. Get the fuck out of here. All right. He, he might be a Hall of Famer in his house, but he ain't an international boxing Hall of Famer. He's in, but I don't recognize him. I put him on the same level as Arturo Gatti and Barry McGuigan, guys that have no business being in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He doesn't deserve it. Very questionable. I agree with you, Mike, 100%. Okay, so Jesus Salas gives me a boxing question. Okay. Do you uh, – he, he says – in last week's episode, you mentioned two Puerto Rican boxers who I thought had a lot of potential, but instead became total disappointments. Wilfredo Vasquez Jr. and Juan Ma Lopez. Do you recall more baffling examples of PR boxers who became busts? P. 
besides Felix Vidal. Yeah, Felix Vidal was a huge bust, but we will not talk about that murdering bastard on this podcast. Fuck him, and how no one's killed him in prison yet for murdering his wife, I'd like to know. And when is the trial going to happen? This murder happened almost two years ago, and there's no trial yet? Come on, man, let's get this dude executed. Fuck Felix Vidal. Um, One great example, um, Jesus, was a Puerto Rican boxer based out of the Bronx who was nicknamed the Bronx Bomber, Alex Ramos, who had a phenomenal left hook. Great amateur boxer, turned pro after the United States boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow because of Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. And he was part of NBC's Tomorrow Champions, part of the Lou Duva stable, and he was progressing. But then he started losing and his career all was all was but destroyed when James the Heat Kitchen almost killed him with a vicious knockout. Alex Ramos's problem was A, stamina, and B, a very shaky chin. And a lot of people had great expectations for him, especially my father. My father thought Alex Ramos was going to be a great, great fighter. But unfortunately, it didn't pan out. So he is the biggest example. I'm not going to talk about Edgar Belanga because I said from day one that dude was limited and that he's a fucking joke and that he was a hype machine by ESPN. Right? The minute he fights an elite fighter, he's getting hospitalized. He's not that good. And um, this past Saturday night, Jesus, we saw Xander Zayas, who I think will be the first great dominant middleweight Puerto Rican champion because Miguel Cotto had a cup of coffee at 160, and so did Felix Trinidad. They didn't have long, long reigns. I see Xander Zayas. When he finally does become a middleweight champion, Becoming the main man in middleweight for many, many years to come. All right. Let me see if there's any more questions. And Jesus, the other question I'll answer next week. Okay. Okay. This is from Jotty, Gangster Electrical on, on, on um, Twitter. Another longtime listener of all my podcasts throughout several platforms and he asks a great question his question is you say that boxing commentary commentary is at an all-time low and he agrees but who would you assemble out of the current crop to make a good ringside commentating crew this is an easy question to answer big man very easy question to answer it'd be a two-man team only i don't need three guys in, in, in announcing and you have all these platforms where they got three men. You don't need three men. First of all, you're wasting a salary, right, that could be used for profit or to help pay other fighters on the card, okay? You don't need three fighters. Howard Cosell's the greatest boxing announcer of all time. 99% of the time, he announced a fight by himself. But, if, but you want a two-man team because these guys today, do not know how to announce a fight by himself, even though the guy I want did at one point announce some fights by himself coming up on ABC, and that's Jim Lampley. Jim Lampley would be my lead announcer. He knows the difference between a hook and a cross. Ladies and gentlemen, when a traditional boxer, an orthodox boxer who is throwing a left jab, when he throws his straight right hand, it's not a right hook. These clown-ass announcers keep calling that punch a right hook. It's a right cross! How many times do I have to say this? It's a right cross. And then if it's a softball fighter with the right jab lead, when he throws a straight left, it's a left cross, not a left hook, you fucking idiots. Jim Lampley knows the difference between a hook and a cross. Unlike Mauro Ronaldo, unlike Todd Grisham. And of course, his color commentator would be the greatest color commentator that ever lived in Roy Jones Jr. Period. End of story. He belongs on that commentating. That's the only commentating team I would use. Now, if you want to use other guys for other parts of the 
the broadcast of the segments of the pro- broadcast, I'd have Steve Farhood as my ringside judge for the show for my because he has done a greater job than the recently deceased Harold Letterman ever did judging fights. Judging the TV fights. Steve Farhood, I have never disagreed with a single card Steve Farhood has ever given. He's seeing what I'm seeing. Steve Farhood would be my uh, expert ringside judge. And, and he's never been an official. He's always been a boxing writer. And he's a solid color commentator. And sometimes could be a great lead announcer. But he's not better than Lampley. And I don't want a three-man team. I want just Lampley and Roy Jones. The chemistry for years at HBO is there. They respect each other. They like each other. They they trust each other. Only need those two with Steve Farhood as the judge that they'll go to after every three rounds to check his scorecard. And then the guy to do the interviews. Fuck Jim Gray. Fuck Jim Gray. Fuck, uh... Mark Kriegel, Max Kellerman would be my guy to do the the interviews because Max will ask great questions. I have lost a ton of respect for Max because he's become top rank in ESPN's shill. I mean, he on his Max unboxing, basically it's a half hour promo for top rank fighters. He barely talks about other fighters, and when he does, it's like he's giving a memo to uh rip into PBC and other fighters that are not top-ranked fighters. That being said, I'd keep Max Kellerman from doing any of that. I wouldn't have him on the boxing team, even though him, Jones, and Lampley were a great trio. I only wanted a, I only wanted a duo. I don't need Max when I have Roy. Because as good as Max was on HBO, he wasn't a pimple on Roy Jones Jr.'s ass when it came to calling a fight, when it came to analyzing a fight, when it came to saying, to telling you, to telling the audience what the fighter must do to win. No one has done that better than Roy Jones Jr. He's a fucking master at color commentating. So my announcing team, if I ran a network and I had a big, big contract like a ESPN, Jim Lampley and Roy Jones Jr. Then my guy judging the fight for the for the audience, Steve Farhood, and the guy interviewing the fighters before fights, in between rounds, and doing the post-fight interviews, Max Kellerman. And to me, that's an all-star team, and you and very credible, and you won't hear the fucking pandering that you, because when Max is up there interviewing a fighter after the fight, he's got to ask what's going on in the fight, and you know, he could throw in what he thought, and then afterwards he could ask, "Well, do you want to fight this guy next?" And Max is good at that, and you don't you you won't hear him um, cheerleading for the network that he's working for, and if he and if he was working for me, and this is my dream team. He know that I don't believe in that pandering shit. I believe in calling things down the line. I don't care if the guy is signed to the network. If he stinks, he stinks, right? Tiafimo Lopez stunk the joint out Saturday night, and you didn't hear criticism from Tim Bradley and Andre Ward, and I'm disgusted with Andre Ward. He's become locked, step, locked and step with Bob Arum in top rank, which pisses me off because he was never a top rank fighter. I could see Timothy Bradley doing it because he was Bob Arum's favorite Negro for many years, and uh, he carries Bob Arum's water. But come on, Andre. And Joe Tessitore is just happy he's got a job because he lasted one year on Monday Night Football, and he was so horrible. They said, oh, get the fuck out of here. If it wasn't for boxing, Joe Tessitore wouldn't be on ESPN. Because he was horrible on Monday Night Football. Because Joe Tessitore announces football like he announces boxing. Every game is the Super Bowl. Like every round in a fight is the the, the 15th round of a heavyweight title fight. Oh, look at that. Oh, oh, Andre. Andre. Oh, Tim. 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 Shut the fuck up. Let me see if there's any more questions. And I believe that's the end of my question and answer. Session for this week. 
All right. For those interested in having their questions answered, you can um go to hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter, or you can uh, DM me, or you could email me, robertsilver57 at hotmail.com. Now, on to my historical retrospective of Mills Lane, one of the greatest referees of all time. Oh, and after I'm done with this, someone had asked me a question. I forgot who, as far as who the top referees of all time, where would I put Mills Lane? Hold on. Did Jesus ask me that question? Let me see. Hold on. No. Jesus just said, I would like to hear an in memoriam for Mills. No, I think it was Garrett. The CEO of Fight Game Media Network that uh was asking where would I rank Mills Lane. So Garrett, I'll 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 talk I'll discuss that after I talk about Mills Lane career. Mills Lane was actually a pro boxer, one of the few referees that were act was actually a pro, and he was decent. Um, I think his record was eleven one and one, eleven wins, one loss, one draw. Then he retired from boxing at a very young age to attend college and law school, and he became a lawyer. And while working in Nevada, he took, here he is, he combined his law degree with his being a former professional fighter and became a referee. And the first major fight he announced was one of the greatest heavyweight fights of all time. And he did a phenomenal job. It was the June 9th, 1978 fight between Larry Holmes and the legend Ken Norton. Mandingo. And they had that legendary 15th round. And Mills Lane did a phenomenal job. Did a phenomenal job. He broke when he had to break him. He didn't get in the way of these fighters fighting their fight. And... The old saying goes that if you don't hear the referee's name being called by the by the announcer, he's doing a great job. And I don't think Cosell mentioned Mills Lane's name once in that entire telecast. And Arthur McCanty was Mills uh, was Howard Cosell's color commentator, and I don't think he ever mentioned Mills Lane's name throughout. That's how great of a job he did in that fight. And in the 15th round, he stood out the way as these two went toe-to-toe for three minutes of the greatest 15th round in boxing history. So that was the first time I saw Mills watching this fight as a 10-year-old boy with my father on our black-and-white TV in the living room. And I didn't think of anything of it. I'm not going to lie here and lie and say, oh, man, that guy was great. Because all I remember is he never got in the way. But what really impressed me, what the, when I really began to be impressed with Mills Lane was another Larry Holmes fight, June of 1982, almost four years to the day Holmes beat Ken Norton in that racially charged fight with Jerry Cooney in which my father and I knew that Jerry Cooney didn't have a hill of beans, didn't have a, a shot in hell at beating Larry Holmes, and Larry Holmes dominated him, and Jerry Cooney kept hitting Larry Holmes low and Mills Lane correctly took away points from Jerry Cooney. Jerry Cooney, he gave Jerry Cooney every shot he could. And finally, Jerry Cooney got stopped and Mills Lane did a phenomenal job in what was a very racially charged fight in which a riot could have broken out if Mills Lane hadn't um, stepped in when he had to the times that Jerry Cooney was hitting Larry Holmes low. Because Jerry Cooney was hitting Larry Holmes very low. In the family jewels, Larry Holmes would say. So that was the second time I was thoroughly impressed with Mills Lane. And then finally, the way he handled the bike fight. Once again in June. All these fights are in June. June of 1997. I believe it was June 28th, 1997. Evander Holyfield versus Mike Tyson in the rematch. Um, November of 96, Holyfield had knocked out Mike Tyson to win uh, Tyson's version of the heavyweight title. And this was the rematch. And in this fight, the bike fight, soon as Mike bit Evander Holyfield, Mills Lane stepped in, took away a point from um, um, 
Mike Tyson, warn Mike Tyson, the fight continued. Mike bit Holyfield again. Mills Lane stepped in, and he did what he was supposed to do. He disqualified Mike Tyson. Many a referee, because this was such a major fight. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, this was the biggest fight financially in boxing history, according to pay-per-view buys. It set the record that was finally broken by uh, De La Hoya versus Mayweather and then destroyed by Mayweather versus Pacquiao. By the way, you'll never see 4 million pay-per-view buys ever again in a, in a pay-per-view fight. That, that's not happening. Never. Um, Mills Lane stepped in and disqualified Mike Tyson. How many referees in history of boxing would have done that? They would have taken two points. Uh, maybe had a break and had the doctor look at Holyfield's ear, maybe even try to have Holyfield get 10, 15 minutes and then continue to fight. No, Mills Lane was like, nah. He saw that Mike Tyson was completely out of control and he DQ'd Mike because if that fight would have continued like most referees would have allowed it to continue because of the magnitude of the fight, a riot would have broke out because Mike was out of control. Mike would have kept biting Evander Holyfield. Why bother? Mills Lane was a phenomenal referee. Of course, the let's get it on. He did not favor anybody in the ring. He called it down the line. He stepped in when he had to step in. He let them fight when he had to let them fight. And he stopped the fight when he had to stop the fight. His judgment was excellent. And you know why I think he had great judgment when it came to stopping a fight? Because he was a lawyer. Then he became a judge, and he was a former boxer. He was in the ring. So he would know if a fighter has taken too much punishment. And legally, with his brilliant legal mind, he's thinking legal, in legal terms, man, I, I've got to stop this fight because this is going to make me look bad. Legally, I, I could be held for a... <laughs> I think that's a great combination, being a lawyer and a boxer. Mills Lane lived to be 85, and he had a lot of fame after he retired. Shortly after the Tyson um, bite fight, Tyson Holyfield bite fight, just a couple of years later, he finally retired, and he had a judge show on television that was very popular. He was the referee in the celebrity death match on MTV. Uh, the trademark, let's get it on, and... I know that he was having some health issues the last few years and he finally passed away at the great age of 85. Great man, um, great referee, one of the greatest referees of all time. And now I'm going to go into my five greatest referees of all time. All right. Um, right off the top of my head from what I've seen. I love Kenny Bayless, I love Tony Weeks, and I love Steve Smoker. Those three guys are all incredible referees. They're my five to three. Steve Smoker is the fight fan's referee. He will give you the benefit of the doubt. If he knows that you recover, that you have the ability to recover from prior fights, he won't stop the fight. He'll give you the benefit of the doubt. So many greatest fights in boxing history in the last 20 to 25 years was refereed by Steve Smoker, who I believe is now retired. Um, Kenny Bayless and Tony Weeks, they call it down the middle. They're, they're, they're straight lace. Um, and they are very fair with their fighters. And they've been great throughout my entire lifetime. So those, that's my, I, uh, in my opinion, Richard Steele and, Joe Cortez, Hall of Fame uh, referees are overrated. Um, I never considered them great referees. Mills Lane, in my opinion, is the second greatest referee of all time. And you heard my retrospective on him and you heard exactly what I feel about him. He's my second greatest referee of all time. And in my opinion, the greatest referee of all time is Arthur McCanty Sr. He refereed the first Ali Frazier fight. Uh, Maybe one day I'll do a historical retrospective on Arthur McCanty. Look him up. His career spoke for itself. And his son continues the tradition of the McCanty name. Arthur McCanty Sr. and Jr., 
not unlike Jimmy Lennon Sr. and Jimmy Lennon Jr. when it came when it comes to ring announcing. They are the equivalent to the uh, referee father and son team of Jimmy Lennon Sr. I mean, of Arthur McCanty Sr. and Arthur McCanty Jr. Honorable mention to Mitch Halpern, who did a great job refereeing the first Tyson Holyfield fight, but who committed suicide a few years later. I thought if he would have continued to referee, he could have easily cracked my top five. He was a great referee. So there you go. And how long did I uh, do this show? Oh, we got it. Oh, under an hour. I was shocked. I thought I'd go over an hour today. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody. Hey, Seuss, I'll answer your non-boxing-related question next week. Um, oh, I have a prediction. Oh, thank God I didn't sign off. We have a crossroad fight between two of the biggest lightweight prospects around today in Frank Martin and Michelle Rivera Saturday night on Showtime. My prediction is that Frank, this will be Frank Martin's coming out party. He is going to thoroughly dominate Rivera with his beautiful boxing, combination punching, speed. They keep claiming Mitchell Rivera is the next Felix Trinidad, that he looks like Trinidad, that he looks like Ali. They even call him Ali Rivera. Nothing about you screams Felix Trinidad or Muhammad Ali, Mitchell Rivera. Is he a good fighter? Yes. Is he special? The only way I could consider him special is if he finds a way to beat Frank Martin. I believe Frank Martin is special, and we will show that Saturday night. If I'm wrong, we will talk about it next week. And so until next week when we review that fight, we'll answer more of your questions, and I will go back to my historical overview of the 45 greatest fighters of all time. I want to wish everybody happy holidays out there. Stay safe. Be careful. The, the the Northeast is cold. I'm living in New York City, and it's in the 20s right now on a Tuesday morning. So, you know, stay warm out there. Love each other, and always be blessed and be a blessing.